So Ezekiel 18 is where we have been for some time, and it's where, in, in a real sense, we're going to continue to be today. What I'm, this, this sermon's kind of weird, because what I'm doing this morning is I'm attempting to answer questions that were, that as, as far as I'm concerned, were unavoidably raised by the text last week, but that I didn't have time to answer. And to do that, and to kind of get at some of the questions, I'm actually going to spend more time in one of the Psalms. And so I'm going to, uh, even though, again, even though this sermon is, is based off of Ezekiel 18, where we will be spending some time is Psalm 19, which is where I'll direct you to now. And we'll read it, and, and this is not going to be an uh, expository sermon in the most precise sense on Psalm 19, because we're not going to go through every verse of it. Again, my goal this morning is to clarify what is in Ezekiel, okay? And so, uh, but we are going to start off by just reading it and, and hearing it and hearing from the Lord together in Psalm 19. And so here we are, these words from the Lord's servant David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Did you know this morning that the sky was preaching to you when you came in? Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. In them He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servants also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord, and so we say, thanks be to God. And our Lord, let it be so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in Ezekiel 18, uh, that whole chapter was about a a question regarding righteousness. And I spent some time unpacking that for you over the last, I think, two weeks. And the problem that faces us this morning, at least one of them, is that when, when a preacher starts preaching a text about righteousness, you always run the risk, or at least you have kind of this existential tension about it, uh, that, is, uh, that it might feel legalistic. When we hear... Uh, texts about righteousness or, or sermons about righteousness or calls to righteousness in the Scriptures, especially calls like those that are as unmistakable as Ezekiel 18, which is just like, be righteous and start now, 
right? Very direct, very clear. We struggle a bit because as Christians, we believe and confess that righteousness is a gift of God given to us by the Holy Spirit, sealed to us then. So you want righteousness? Well, believe in Jesus. Have faith. And your sins are washed away. Nothing can separate us. Amen. And then we find passages like Ezekiel 18, which, if you don't recall, kind of delivers this message of, you want righteousness? Okay, stop sinning and start being righteous or you die basically the summary of Ezekiel 18. Part of our problem then is we tend to do a really bad job sometimes understanding the law of God and what it's for. So um, American Christianity, I will say, and I'm I'm speaking in generalities, perhaps unfairly uh, in some corners, but American Christianity tends to, when we read the law of God, we tend to read either, um, well, excuse me, we're tempted either to blunt the commands, so we, we see the intensity we see the intensity of the law of God and we say well that sounds like a 10 but really I think God meant it more at like a level six so we tend to like blunt the intensity or we try to make it into a negotiation okay so what the Lord is saying here is that I've you know I've kept like a, maybe a 60 percent of this law I've done a pretty good job with it and so I'm sure that's enough maybe that's I'm almost to righteousness right and so we that is we, we tend to either make God's commandments fuzzy and, and say obedience to them is not really super important, or we go in the other direction and start to live like Pharisees, and we try to negotiate and track how good we are and how it makes us so much better, or I think in our case, it makes us just like more refined and more dignified and more respectable than our trash neighbors. Or we tend to confuse fulfilled with invalidated. That's a big one, right? Jesus fulfilled the law, and by that we mean Jesus ripped out the Old Testament from my Bible. No. Perhaps that's its own separate sermon, but for now, you're going to get it in one sentence. The law was fulfilled by Jesus doesn't mean the law don't matter no more. Okay? That doesn't mean obedience to all of the law of God will look precisely the same as it did in ancient Israel. Things like feasts, ceremonies, rituals... I would say we are actually still in obedience to those things, but our obedience doesn't take precisely the same shape. But we struggle with the law and how to apply it, how to understand it, because there's so much bad teaching about the law. And so we either blur the distinction between law and gospel, that's what the quotation on the front of your bulletin this morning is about, or we pretend that there's just no law at all. When we do that, a large portion of the Bible stops making sense. Like Psalm 19. If you look at verse 7, that kind of second half of Psalm 19, verse 7 starts talking, starts describing the law of the Lord in the most interesting of terms. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there's great reward. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. The law does that? 
I thought the Holy Spirit did that. Yes, indeed. God Himself, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gives His people new hearts. But how does He awaken our hearts to know what is righteous and what what righteous godly living looks like? By giving us His law, His commands, telling us to walk in them. And guess what? We find that when we walk in them, our souls come to life. Again, it's hard to talk about the law of God, whether we're speaking to Christians or to unbelievers. There's often nothing we want to hear less than Psalm 19, verse 7. Reviving the soul. Sorry, I think I'm moving ahead to... Yeah, yeah, we'll keep it there. Uh, the, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So my question is, what if all the problems we see in our culture have at their root something to do with souls that are dying, souls that are shriveling up? What if your soul is suffocating? Have you ever considered it? What if your soul is starving? And what if it is because your concept of righteousness is that of like a harsh schoolmaster who can never be pleased rather than food for your starving soul? And so I am taking it for granted this morning that righteousness in the Bible often sounds like you are bad, so stop it. <laughs> like calls to righteousness. Sound, some of them sound that way. And if you read Ezekiel 18, it, that is kind of the impression you're left with. Why? Because obedience to God's commands and righteousness are inseparable. They are not precisely the same thing. Such that you can say, obedience to God's commands, that is what makes me righteous, so now I'm going to just go and, and work really hard and make myself righteous. No, they're not precisely the same thing, but you can't have one without the other. And so we seek to answer this question of just what is righteousness then? We're going to look at a few texts together and see what God would have us see. First, I want to make this clear to you. Before we talk about what righteousness is, let me give you the Bible's bright, shining example, and that is the law of God. In other words, the law of God is righteous. This is what verse 9 says, okay? In Psalm 19, verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and there it is, righteous altogether. Tim Keller has helpfully pointed out that this word righteous can also mean straight, And so if you think of a straight edge or a level or some other kind of tool that you might use if you're building something and you need it to be straight and even, okay? Um, Blair Bice is helping us put shelves into the house and they look absolute, they're absolute perfection. And so so that, that, I mean, I've been thinking about that when I think about this word righteous and and straight because I know that, I know Blair, the tools you use have to be like perfect. And Marissa and I are still in the process of getting all our furniture moved into the manse, and there's been at least one item we've been actually unable to get through the door. We couldn't fit it through the door. We will eventually have to take it apart and get it in in pieces. And that's because I didn't check the standards of the door against the standards of the piece of furniture. And how would I do that? Well, I would use some, again, some kind of measurement standard, like a tape measure or a or a yardstick, or something like that. What, what do those things enable you to do? Well, those things enable you to classify stuff and figure out what it's really like, how big or small it is, and whether it can fit through your front door. When the Bible calls God's law 
righteous. It's saying that God's law is the measuring tape or the yardstick. It's how you determine right and wrong. It's how you weigh good and evil. It's how you define compassion or cruelty. And for Christians, it is the only way to do those things. Because listen, if there is some other standard outside the law of God, we need to call that other thing God. Or at least the law of God. We ought to be worshiping whoever gave us that standard. So the law of God is the standard, not our emotions or empathy or absence of offense or presence of tough love or whatever else. The ultimate standard is the law of God. And so when we say God's law is righteous, we are saying there is nothing outside of God that can judge God. Why do we believe lying is wrong? Well, because God is truth. Why do we believe injustice is wrong? Because God is just. Why do we believe selfishness is wrong and self-sacrifice is right? Well, because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. And and here's where it matters. In in verse 7, to go back to verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The perfect law of the Lord is not only the standard, it is the food and drink that revives your soul. And unless you have this standard in place, your soul will begin to shrivel and die. And we've already seen in history when you try to remove God from the consciousness of a a society, we've seen what happens. And if you weren't alive to see that, please do have the decency to start looking around. When God is removed from the consciousness of a society, their grounding for morality vanishes. And in the famous words of Dostoevsky, if God does not exist, then everything is permitted. Now please note, my point is not that atheists cannot practice ethics or morality. Of course they can. My point is they have no consistent grounding or standard for doing so. There has to be a divine measuring tape somewhere, or we're not going to know with certainty how to treat each other. C.S. Lewis notes that there are people who like to talk about how morality is subjective, that is, it's, it's up to each individual person to determine their own morality until you pull their wallet out of, your, out of their pocket and say it's yours. Or an, until you just step in front of them in line at the bank. Then rather suddenly they start appealing to a universal standard of justice. Now, to be fair, some people in the world do try to be super consistent on this. In the earlier part of the 20th century, a guy named Jean-Paul Sartre, the infamous, fa- the infamous father of uh, existentialism, he argued in print, in published work, that you can't judge the Nazis because there is no God. If there is no God, all you re- that's, uh, the furthest you can really go is get upset that the Nazis did things their way instead of your way. Now, look, you've got to give the guy credit. That's uber-consistent. Right? It's really consistent, but it's also a level of depravity that scares most people. And so, so getting, getting back to this question of righteousness then. What, is, what does righteousness mean? Okay? So we know that the law of God is righteous. It shows us, it gives us the standard because it is the standard. Shows us what this God has called us to. The second point I have for you is that righteousness is going to mean change. 
if we take it seriously. That's part of what Ezekiel 18 is getting at. Right? Calling out to the people, giving them instructions, obviously ways in which they are not walking, which in many ways Ezekiel 18 is a carbon copy of kind of a lot of the, uh, several of the Ten Commandments. Well, righteousness means change. Walk in this way, not in that way. Another reason why we struggle with this question, is righteousness something I do, or is righteousness something I'm given? Right? The reason why we struggle with that is because, well, on one level, like, we know there are people who claim to follow Jesus, but don't walk in His ways. And we know there are people who will be condemned on the last day for doing just that. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name? I mean, look at their resumes. It's pretty impressive stuff. Do many mighty works in your name. I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You, you workers of lawlessness. That is, literally, you people who by your actions live as though my world is a lawless world. Live as though I never spoke a word of command about how it is you are to live. I will never forget during my first or second year of teaching... A high school student said to me, look, Mr. Rhodes, if you want high school students to take you seriously, okay, which was my goal in life, right? <laughs> Just all you got to do is talk about Jesus, talk about forgiveness. Just don't talk about stuff like abstinence or sexual purity or LGBT stuff, right? Because just, it just won't be taken seriously. And on one level, I found that really perplexing because the question aimed at me then is like, well, yeah, I, lo- I like Jesus, I believe in God, but, you know, I just I really want to sleep with whoever I want. And are you really going to tell me God's going to punish me for that? And I want to say to such a person, why would you be bothered by the punishment of God while ignoring the wisdom of God? That's like saying, I'm going to go jump off a 20-story building Okay? Because I want to break the law of gravity. It's what I want to do. I want to break the law of gravity. But I'm a little worried. Do you think I'm going to get a speeding ticket? Right? It'd be like, well, no, breaking the law of gravity is not illegal. It's just stupid. Okay? And you're going to find that out real quick. And so that's, that's what, uh, if we, yeah, the next one is uh, verse 7 of Psalm 19. That's what Psalm 19 says, right? That that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Righteousness means change. This righteous, perfect law is going to start doing stuff to you as you read it and put it into practice in life. That's what Ezekiel 18 is saying. As the Lord calls them to righteous living, it's going to look a whole lot different from how they're presently living. And so the law of the Lord grants wisdom. As soon as you start asking, is this right or is this wrong? You're looking for what? You're looking for that tape measure, for your heart, and for the decisions you want to make. And the law of the Lord grants wisdom. The teachings of Jesus, then, do demand that we change. That's what repentance means, right? To to turn around and, and change. And the modern secular standard is an exercise in constantly avoiding change. Let me explain. 
The secular standard in our culture for morality is you can do whatever you want so long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Which calls for some measure of careful analysis because not uh, it, it calls for some measure of careful analysis. You know, is this going to hurt somebody? But it doesn't really call for any change. Your desires can remain exactly the same and you can get what you want so long as there's no collateral damage. But that starts to break down if you think about it for more than a few minutes. Because there is so much more potential hurt in your actions than you realize. Okay, So should you tell the truth? Well, that might hurt somebody. Really, it might. Should you lie? Well, that might hurt somebody. Should you cut your parents off and never speak to them again? That might hurt somebody. Should you plunge yourself into an addiction until it sucks all the life out of you? That might hurt somebody, you know. The problem is a lot of your actions contain potential hurt to someone, if I can put it that way. The other problem is that if there's no wisdom that rules over your heart, you will often find yourself in an ethical gridlock that you can't break because to go either way could potentially hurt somebody. And parents, you know this already. If, if your child says, I don't want to go to school today, or homeschoolers, I don't want to do school today. You know. And so maybe you have to sit down, mom or dad, and explain what's up. You have to say, look, I know, I know it's not what you want to do. I know you'd rather do anything else. But if you don't do this, then, then you'll fall behind. And you know, if you'll fall behind, these are really important things that you're learning. That's going to hurt you later on. And what you're saying is your autonomy will devour your freedom. Right? If, if you just keep pursuing, I'm going to do what I want, eventually that ends up devouring your freedom. Please listen to me, right? Listen to me, child, for I am old and wise and you tried to eat a crayon yesterday. God tells us in His law how to live. Why? Because your Creator knows how you're designed. He knows how you work. He knows, and this is so important, He knows that if you take shots at the law of God, you're taking shots at yourself. And so, Righteousness means change. It means transformation. And now you begin to understand in Ezekiel 18, God's call to His people, right? At the very end of telling them about their unrighteousness and what righteous living looks like, He says, cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Why will you shrivel up and die? Because of your pursuit of unrighteousness. And we talked last week about make yourselves and how earlier in Ezekiel, he's already told them, I'm going to make this new heart and new spirit for you. And now it's as though he's saying, come and get it. Right? Just come and get it. Repent and come and get it. But in a sense, I don't wonder if this is also almost a picture of, of performing surgery, but a little bit on yourself. And here's where I'm, what I'm trying to say with that. Some of you might have seen a few years back Somebody sent around, a, it was just for fun, a joke, like the hardest final exams you've ever heard of, divided up by subject. And so like the biology final exam was create life, <laughs> right? And it just says, and describe the effects on your ecosystem, um, right? But then for, uh, for medical school, it said underneath your desk, you will find a scalpel, some gauze, and a bottle of scotch. Remove your own appendix, 
joke. And it's like, okay, that, you know, that would be extraordinarily painful. And yeah, that is kind of the point. Because sometimes this work of turning in a different direction does feel like a blade being driven into you. And so this brings us back to our original question. Just put a pin there for a second. What is this righteousness to which you and I are called? Is it something we're given or is it stuff we do? Right? Is, it, is it something we are or is it something we do? And honestly, the more I study the Bible, the more I'm convinced that the wisest of the ancients would say, what a strange question. Because what we see biblically is that the answer is, is both, yeah, I mean, maybe you're thinking that. Well, the answer is yes or the answer is both. True, but what I'm getting at is I think it's the wrong question. The question's not, what am I doing? The question is, what is my heart loving? What is my spirit chasing after and yearning for? Let's come back to Psalm 19 for a moment. Look how the psalmist begins to close at the end of the psalm. Speaking of the commandments of God, he says in Psalm 19, More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. When I was in Scotland, I discovered that there's a Scottish creamery that actually sells honey ice cream with little bits of honeycomb in it. And I check on about an annual basis to see if it's ever made it across the ocean. It hasn't yet, but it'll change your life. It's, it was so good, right? And so here's the psalmist saying that these words from God are, are sweet and desirable and delightful. And that's where I think we really struggle. Because maybe so far, you've been nodding your head. Okay, moral standard, got it. Yeah, no problems there. Straight measurement for our morality, check. Okay, law of God is wise. We should live according to our design. That, that is wisdom, makes us wise. Fine. The law is sweet. The law could give us joy. We struggle with that one. And there's a reason. It's because in our, in our flesh, when we read the commands of God, again, we tend to either despise the command or despise ourselves. It's what also happens for a lot of people, I think, when you read Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel talks about all these things that you've got to do to be considered righteous. And it sounds rather well, frightening to measure yourself against that. But the Christian approach to all of this is different. Here it is. The Christian is able to read the law of God and say, this is delightful. This is really sweet. Why? Because the terror is gone. The terror is gone. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Christians believe and confess that Jesus Christ came to earth. God in the flesh obeyed the whole law. Loved God completely. Never stole anything. Never had an impure thought. Never lied. Freely forgave. Why? Because everyone knows Everyone knows that you have to be righteous. This is what Ezekiel is saying in chapter 18. You must be righteous, right? Never mind what your fathers did. You remember the proverb at the start of the chapter. Never mind what your father did. He, his goodness won't give you life. His sins won't bring you death. What you do is on you. You must be righteous and you know it already. And for some of you, that reality drives you into obsessive tendencies where you try to control everything in your life and world. 
And I don't know, maybe you've been to therapy about it. And maybe that's helped you dull this impulse a bit. That's about all it can do. For others, you know you have to be righteous. You know you can't, so you've just tried to turn it off completely. Or you want to try to excuse yourself, maybe under the banner of doing your best. That's another popular one. Okay, so I'm not perfect, but but my law for righteousness is I'm going to do my best. Okay, (laughs) all right. Have you? I mean, seriously, have you ever given your best consistently? Most days, I feel like I don't have enough to give my best or that my best is even enough in the first place. Right? So how do we live with that? Well, we, we either try to turn it off or we just suffer underneath it. No, neither one's really satisfying. Why? Because we know we must be righteous. And this, is, this right here is the beauty and glory of the gospel. Because Jesus says, no, life is not, you know, just do your best and God will take care of the rest. That's so saccharine and vapid and unsatisfying. The gospel is, you already know that what you owe is perfect obedience. And Jesus Christ has come and done it. And so we are then commanded to bow the knee to the king. And so we stand before God and get this. We can say then, I'm perfect. You can actually say that, Christian. I'm perfect. Not by my own accomplishments, but by His. The God of Ezekiel 18 commands us and calls us that we live in the way we were designed to live. That is what Ezekiel 18 in large part is about. This is the way I've designed you to live. So start living and don't die. And being a Christian does not mean that we look at the calls to righteousness and we say, oh, you know what? New covenant, New Testament, doesn't apply, right? I'm, I'm a new covenant Christian. All these laws, bah, <laughs> they, they don't, don't apply to me. No, you don't say Jesus made me righteous, so commandments don't matter. Rather, we look at the commands of God and we get to say, amen. And it's a happy amen. It's a joyful amen. It's not a terrified amen. Because when a Christian looks at the law of God, He can say, hello, old friend. You don't scare me anymore. You can't save me. But because of Jesus, I can actually hear you and actually be transformed, actually change, actually walk in the ways of the one who created and saved me. Now, perhaps when you hear me say that, what I've just done is make it just sound like it's easy all the time. Oh, my goodness, you know, just, oh, obedience to the law of God, it's like drinking a Diet Coke, just smooth and nice and comfortable. No, no, it's not. Oftentimes, look, I don't want to forgive, okay? Some of you are really hard to forgive, you know? (laughs) But then the Lord draws me back. Because he makes me pray. He makes me pray something. You know what he makes me pray? Forgive me my debts as I forgive my debtors. Lord, forgive me only to the extent that I forgive others. And then I'm compelled to forgive. And when I do that, any bitterness in my heart loses its grip. And I say, oh, (laughs) that's why my father insists on this. He loves me. The law of God is righteous. Righteousness means change. Where does the gospel come in then? The gospel, the good news of the saving blood of Jesus Christ, His forgiveness, 
means that your relationship to the law and my relationship to the law has changed. It was once the thing that condemned you. Now it is the thing that heals you. Sometimes the healing comes with great difficulty. Sometimes obedience is really, really hard. And to obey when it's really, really hard feels like a kind of death. But death is the only way you get to resurrection, yeah? Death is the only way you get to resurrection. So fear not the death of obedience, dear saints. There's resurrection on the other side. And so if you feel like the law only makes you feel guilty, well, congratulations, you have located a purpose of the law. It's supposed to. It can't save you. It will always drive you back to Jesus. And faith in Jesus, then, is what makes you a Christian. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is not something that gets removed from us when we sin, Christians. Now, look, it's possible to read Ezekiel 18 and feel that way. Walk in this way and be righteous. Oh, I'm not really doing a good job of walking in that way. I guess I must not be righteous. I guess I lost it. Right? It's, it's mentally, it's easy to get there. That's just a bad way to read the law. Righteousness is not taken away when we sin. Rather, righteousness, I mean, is it possible to like own something but then own it more? I, I don't know. But righteousness is owned, it's ours more deeply when we repent. Right? When we repent. It doesn't, I'm not saying you get more saved. But I'm saying that this, this righteousness, this gift that you've been given, it, 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 it settles on your heart that much more when you repent. So repent a bunch, yeah? Look at, look at Ezekiel 18.30. The Lord says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God, repent. Turn from your transgressions. Why? Lest iniquity be your ruin. Lord's saying, I don't want you to die. I want you to live. So this repentance is the mark of the righteous man. Right? Do you see? The righteous man, it's not, oh, I have everything together. I don't struggle with sin. I don't even know how to spell temptation. Like, life is just so easy. Right? No, no. The righteous man is saying, there's my sin. I found it. Repentance now. Don't delay. This This righteousness and this repentance then. Righteousness and repentance. Gift or action? Well, it's a gift to all those who have received it in order to live it out. So there's both. Now, for the sake of, not for the sake, excuse me, not for the sake of like keeping your little moral checklist, which again is what your heart is inclined to do so that you can look inside your heart and and look at your record and be like, I'm doing pretty good, right? A lot better than this guy. Or that guy over there, right? Keeping it together. I'm, I'm, I'm moving through the list. We're looking pretty good. No, don't do that. Not that this righteousness is not for the sake of your internal list. Remember all those in Matthew 7, right? Not all who say to me, Lord, Lord, on that day, right? He says, I never knew you. Why? Did you notice? They've got a list. Look at all the things we did, Lord. Look at all the stuff we did for you. They've got a list. They're coming with their list. And Jesus says, your faith is in your list. I don't know who you are. 
So not for the sake of a list. Because if you look inside your heart to, to find Jesus, to figure out how much like Jesus you really are, you know, you're not Jesus, so you're going to be disappointed. So not for a list, but because the Lord and His law revives your soul, refreshes your heart, sweet to your taste. Righteousness is a gift, yes, that transforms you. It doesn't mean you will never sin again, but here's what it does mean. It means more and more as the days go on, as you're following Jesus, you will hate and loathe and despise your sin. It, it doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that you will never sin again. It means that you just long for the day when you will never sin again. That's how Psalm 19 closes. Did you notice? Verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Right? So after, after saying all these things about the law of the Lord, he just says, oh Lord, may, may it be. That's what I want. Right? I want... That, that honeycomb, that delight, that, that righteousness, I'm walking in your ways, I want all of that. Let, let it be, Lord. Let the, let the words of my mouth, let the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Right? So that's paraphrase another way. Oh, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Right? Christians are not those who, by their actions, keep a perfect record. Christians recognize the standard to which they are called, and they long for greater conformity to that standard. And they rejoice when, yeah, on occasion they observe conformity in their own life and in the lives of their neighbors. And this is why our Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Righteousness is indeed a gift, comes to you by faith in Jesus, Ethical behavior, look, ethical moral behavior doesn't make you a Christian any more than dog food makes you a dog. Yeah? Eating dog food. If you do, then don't tell me. But for the Christian, righteousness is observed and seen and confirmed by what? By a hunger for righteousness. Do you see? That's exactly, by the way, where Israel was failing in Ezekiel 18. Why don't, we, why don't we jump back there? Ezekiel 18 and verse 2. The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. You see, the sin that's being addressed in Ezekiel 18 is not simply that they were failing to obey God's law. They certainly were doing that, but that's not, that's not the most central target of Ezekiel 18. What was going on in Ezekiel 18 is that they were tasting the law of the Lord, right? Sweeter than honey, right? Drippings from the honeycomb. They were tasting the law of the Lord and saying, disgusting. Right? Because, because, of our, because of our fathers, this is nasty in our mouths. That was their great sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who long to be righteous. Blessed are those who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus because they've tasted and now they just want more. You see, a Christian is not a man with outward perfect obedience. A Christian is a man who's been made righteous and so his appetite is primed. 
And he hungers and thirsts for more of that sweet honeycomb of God's good ways. And he keeps on seeking and he keeps on hungering. And good news, he keeps on finding. And so the righteous are the ones then who are always undergoing constant change. Constantly discovering sin. Oh, I found some more sin. I didn't know about it. I found some more sin. I didn't know about it. What do we do with sin then? We take it to Jesus. I repent. Constantly finding sin, constantly repenting. Why? Why? Because the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And to quote the author of life himself, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Go to the next one. No pleasure in the death of anyone says the Lord God. So turn and live. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, give us a proper appetite for righteousness, not for simple outward conformity, but to hunger so deeply. Eyes to see our sin and to hate it, to hate it, and to long to be satisfied by your righteousness. Oh, Lord, thank you for this promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And so give it to us to believe in this promise, to be satisfied by it and in it, for the law of the Lord is perfect and it revives our souls. And so with revived souls, give it to us to worship you and to, well, in a moment, to feast on you and then to be sent out to love our neighbors for the sake of Jesus, for your law is good. It endures forever and it is sweet to our lips. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd meet us here and serve us, that we might be more convinced and satisfied by you. In Jesus' name, amen.